ahead and grab out your Bible and something to take some notes with this morning, though. Uh, as you probably know from the series graphic and from last week, we are in a character study of the prophet of Elijah. A lot of times during the year, we'll do topical studies, uh, a series around a particular idea or thought. And then throughout the year, we do Bible studies where we do some of the books of the Bible. We walk verse by verse through those. And then we're doing in a third option this time, we're doing what we call a character study. We're looking at one of the men or women of God, a prophet of God that Elijah was in the Old Testament. And we're beginning to study his life and see what we can learn from that. And so I just want to say too, a lot of you told me last week that it looked like my shadow was on the screen behind me. I just want you to know that is Elijah back there. All right, everybody. That is not my, my shadow on the screen. So I was checking that out. It's a lot better than the one two previous ago that I had bunny ears up here for the whole time. And nobody told me. All right, everybody. So I just, I want to throw that out there that we are not friends if you don't let me know what it looks like. But go ahead and grab out your Bibles. If you'd like to, you can download the Victory Harvest Church app. Uh, There's a fill-in-the-blank version of today, all the verses and notes that we'll go through, uh, all of the points there with a fill-in-the-blank version, which I personally like. So if you like that, you can get in the app and have all of those. Uh, If you do have your Bible with you, uh, and of course we'll have the verses on the screen, you can open to 1 Kings chapter 18. And I just want to set the backstory before we get uh, to the verse that we're in for today. And I want to kind of set up the day with just a statement, and that is that above everything else in our lives, and this is going to, you'll see this appear throughout the sermon today, but above everything else in our lives, God wants all of our worship. That God wants all of it, that he wants nothing else to come between us and him, that he wants nothing else to be set in that place. And so if there's one message that I want you to get today before we kind of dive into this second chapter of the story of Elijah, it's that God wants all of our worship. God wants all of our focus. He wants all of our adoration. He doesn't want to take second place in anything in our life. And so there's something we learned from this second part. The first week we looked at the preparation of Elijah. This second part, we're going to look at what God requires of our worship. That we can learn from the story and from the prophet of Elijah. In fact, in the the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, the first one that God gives the nation of Israel is that you'll have no other gods before me. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said that you would love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And so God doesn't want to take second place in any part of our lives. He's asking us to give all. And so, which gives good reason, by the way, and we'll kind of look at this a little bit today. It gives good reason that if you were in Satan's position, what would you do to hurt God the most? If God requires the worship and he wants our adoration and our focus, what would you do to hurt him the most? Well, if you were in that position, the enemy of our souls, the spiritual enemy, you would try to turn the hearts of people away from God. If you really wanted to hurt God the most in his creation, he loves their worship and he wants to hear from him. If you really wanted to do that, you would turn their hearts away from the one true God, which incidentally is what he's been doing for generations and generations. For hundreds of years, the devil has been trying to turn the hearts of God's people away from him. Putting false gods in the place of the one true God. It's called the sin of idolatry. Now, when I was in high school, I attended a Bible study led by two uh, college guys who shared an apartment. And so we would show up for this Bible study. And one of the guys was real serious and straight-laced, and one of them was not. You've met duos like that, right? You understand, a lot of times, you, they, they're just pairs that go together. And so the one was very serious, and the serious guy was the one leading the study. And so that night, he started with what I think he thought was very filled with gravitas and this very deep moment. And he said, now, guys, we're going to talk about idolatry. And his voice got really deep. And he said, can anybody tell me what idolatry is? And his roommate, who I think had been waiting all day long for this moment, shouted from the kitchen. He was like, yeah, that's the place where everything costs a dollar. That's the thing. 
And you could tell a lot of spiritual, a lot of spiritual things were learned that evening, right? There was a whole lot of, I don't remember another thing from that evening except for that moment. And some of you will get that at lunch this afternoon, all right? It'll come, it'll come to you. But today we're going to talk about idolatry, not the Dollar Tree, all right, everybody? So if you're taking notes there, here's kind of a key thought for today. Write this down, jot it down if you're taking notes, fill in the blank if you're taking notes. And that is this idea from this second chapter of Elijah that idols try to promise what only God can give. That when the devil tries to put false gods in place of the one true God, you see this all throughout the Bible. We're going to study it in the life of Elijah. But you see this time and time again, and then you see it in your own life, that he tries to substitute false gods for the one true God. And I promise you that false gods, they try to promise what only the true God can give. They try to offer what only God can give. For example, money is a pretty popular false god. If you agree, say yes. Come on. Money is a pretty popular false god in our day and age. And what is the promise that money tries to make? Tries to make that if you have enough money, what does our culture tell you? That you'll be safe, you'll be secure, and you'll be happy. That if you could just get enough money, that if you're not safe, secure, and happy, you just don't have enough yet. And all those people who have enough money that aren't safe and secure and happy, they just don't know what to do with it. If you had that money... You would know what to do with it and you would be secure and you would be happy. But isn't it true? It doesn't matter how much money you have. I don't care what the promise of money says. It doesn't matter how much money you have when somebody tells you that you have a sickness and 30 days to live. I don't care how much money you have. There's no security in that. Or you might say, well, money makes you happy if you have enough of it. But I promise you, when you lose a loved one, I don't care how much money there is in the world. It cannot buy your happiness in that moment. Money makes false promises that it cannot deliver on. And too many people have put the false god of money into their lives that makes promises it cannot provide. In the life of Elijah, the people of Israel are serving idols. They're putting false gods in the place of the one true God. In fact, if you missed last week, I'll just kind of recap. It'll help you kind of set the stage for this second part. Elijah has been called to confront a very evil king in the history of the nation of Israel. They've had 19 consecutive evil leaders up until this point, 200 years of evil leadership, not just inept leadership, right? Not just overmatched leadership, evil leadership. King Ahab, the wicked king, and his wife, Queen Jezebel, the most wicked queen. Now they've paired up and you have this wicked king. And the Bible says he did more evil than all of his predecessors before him. He did more evil in the eyes of God than everybody who came before him. So you have the worst of the worst. Right now, leading the king of Israel and above all his sins and wickedness, all the things that King Ahab did, the worst that he did is he turned the hearts of the people away from the one true God and had them to serve the gods of Baal and the gods of Asherah. Now, Baal was the sun god, this fire god in their pagan rituals. And then Asherah was kind of like his wife. And so Ahab turned the hearts of the people away from the true God. They were no longer serving the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and said they were worshiping the false gods. And the gods of Baal and Asherah, they made these promises of if you worship them, then your crops will grow. If you worship them, then you'll have success in your home. You'll have success in war. If you worship them, all of these things that they try to do, false gods promise what only the true God can provide. And they began to do this in the life. And so God raises up Elijah to confront the king. And so he stands before the king and he says, in the name of the Lord, God says that it will not rain on the land. Until I give the word and the rain comes. So you trust in the God of Baal that's going to make the crops grow. Watch till you see what the true God does in holding back the rain. And so Elijah stands down the king. It's this this face off with him for that first verse. And King Ahab and then there's a drought in the land. And so there's this incredible disaster that comes upon them. And so if you kind of study the story about this agricultural society, this drought is the worst thing that could have possibly happened in the land. And so they're under this punishment. 
And then God takes Elijah and takes him into a time of hiding and isolation and preparation. We looked at that in week one. You say, well, why did he do that? Because Ahab wanted to kill him. Come on, it's not a trick question, everybody. Because Ahab wanted him dead. Ahab basically tells him in a verse that if you see him, kill him on the spot. And so Elijah goes into this time of isolation and God takes him to a place called the Kareth Ravine. If you were with us last week, Kareth means cutting down or humbling, this cutting off. And God isolates him and he prepares him for the mission that he has for him next that we're going to look at today. And the ravens bring him meat and bread and he drinks from the brook. And it's this incredible time of God providing for Elijah. But one day the brook dries up and God comes to him and he says, Elijah, I want you to move on now to the, the city of Zarephath. There's a widow there who's going to provide for you. So Elijah shows up in the city and the widow and Elijah and the widow's son, they have this miracle time. It does, the Bible doesn't say it says many days. They have this miracle time where God provides with the oil and the bread that does, it never runs out. And so they have day after day, God is providing for them this little cup of oil, this little piece of flour, and they have nothing. And then God just provides day after day, doesn't run out. This miracle that happens. Well, one day the widow's son dies. And you watch the steps of Elijah's life as he sees God bring the answer to the drought prayer. He sees God begin to provide for him in the Kareth Ravine. You see God's begin to do these things with the widow's house. And he sees these things happen. You see him take these steps of faith until this point in the story. So now he takes the widow's son up to the upper room and he cries out to God. And the Bible says God hears the prayer of Elijah. And he raises the boy back to life. And you see God preparing Elijah to be the man of God that he has called him to be. Now, chapter 17 tells us that he goes into hiding. Chapter 18, Elijah emerges again. And we realize or we recognize from the story that it's been three years that Elijah has been in preparation. Three years of isolation. Three years God has been teaching him and preparing him for this moment. And now the word of the Lord comes to him and he says, Elijah, it's time to confront the king. Three years of drought, three years of preparation, three years of isolation. Now it's time to confront Ahab. And so Elijah emerges from this. So chapter 17, he's in isolation. Chapter 18, he emerges. And I love this story because he comes out of this hiding place. He comes out of this preparation. And the first person that he runs across in chapter 18 is a guy by the name of Obadiah. And I like Obadiah. We're not going to really study him too much today. But I like him because he's like the one normal person in the story. All right? You have the evil king. You have the super spiritual Elijah. And then you got Obadiah who's just like, let me live my life. I love the Lord God. I fear him. But I'm just trying to, to do some things here. And so Obadiah meets Elijah on the road kind of out of nowhere. And Elijah's like, Obadiah, go and tell the king Elijah is here. Right? He makes this big announcement. Go and tell him. And Obadiah's like, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. He said, because the king said, we're supposed to kill you on spot, right? And I'm not going to do that because I fear the Lord. But I also think if I go tell the king, you can read this in your Bible. If I go tell the king Elijah is here while I'm gone, I think God's going to spirit you away somewhere. And when me and the king show back up and you're not here, he will lift my head from my shoulders. I think that is what's going to happen. So you go tell the king yourself. I'm not telling the king nothing. And so somewhere in here, the Bible doesn't tell us how Elijah convinces him to go and tell the king that Elijah is here. And so they meet up again. Elijah and Ahab. In 1 Kings 18, 17, now we pick up the story. Elijah's been in preparation. Elijah's now emerging from preparation. In verse 17, they meet together again. And when Ahab sees Elijah, he says to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now that word troubler in the Hebrew, that can translate to snake or viper. What Ahab is basically saying is, Is that you, you low down, no good snake who brought this drought on our land? People are dying, Elijah. This drought is coming. All these things are happening because of you. Well, Elijah says, I'm not going to take any of that from you. And he pops back to the king. Watch this in verse 18. He says, I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. 
You're the one that abandoned the Lord's commands. You're the one that followed the Baals. You're the ones who set up all these false gods. And watch this. He says, you're the one that done all of these things. And you see Elijah confronting this very popular idea at the time. This idea that there are multiple gods. That Ahab had embraced. That Jezebel had sold to the people lock, stock, and barrel. You see him confronting that from the very beginning. And he'll do this all throughout the story. But he confronts this idea that there would be multiple God. Now, I'm going to have a couple of words this morning that you may or may not have heard before. And they sound spiritual on the face of them. But I think they're important for this conversation. The first one is monotheism. And the second one is polytheism. You say, what is monotheism? Monotheism is the belief that there is one God. As Christians, we are monotheistic in our beliefs. Well, polytheism is the belief that there are multiple gods. And Elijah is confronting this polytheistic culture. He's confronting where they would worship multiple gods. Now, those of us who are Christians, you would say we believe in the one true God, that we are monotheistic in our beliefs. But even though we believe in the one true God, many of us live what I would call polytheistic lives. So we we have what we truly believe and what we say with our mouths, but then we have what our actions are. And I think a whole lot of us, more than probably we would expect, we believe we are monotheistic, but we live polytheistic lives. Now, most people I know aren't worshiping the Baal and Asherah, all right? I don't know about you people you know, but most people that I come in contact with aren't worshiping Baal and Asherah. In fact, the false gods of today are a little bit more socially acceptable, right? The false gods of today, and I mean, let's be honest, a lot of people worship the false god of money. Or a lot of people will worship the false god of material possessions. They'll worship the false god of the house, the god of the car. They'll worship a lot of different things. It's not Baal and Asherah anymore because a lot of times we just don't even know who those are. But in our lives, so many people are worshiping other false gods that we put into place. Even sometimes the false god of our homes or the false god of our children. You say, well, how could something as good and well-behaved as my children be a false god in our life? Anything that takes the place of God in our lives, is idolatry. Even something as good and well-natured as your children, even something as obedient as your... Anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Now, for some of you, that's no problem. You're like, they're not the God in my life. I can tell you that. But every one of us, I think, including your pastor, has something in our lives. Something that we've placed in maybe over a season or something that's worked its way in. Some false God that we believe the promise of and put in the place of God in our lives. And so I'm asking you today, just be honest. Be honest with yourself, and you don't have to say this to your neighbor or anything like that, but begin to think, what has taken the place? What have you set up in your life? What has become a false idol? And I'll tell you a few in my life. I'm not proud of these, but we're going to be honest today with each other. One of them is kind of obvious. It's just in my own life, and that is over seasons of time, I've made the church an idol. Over seasons of time, the ministry, over seasons of time, I've made just build the church, serve the church. I've let it work into it. And I do it in the name of the Lord. I believe it is my calling to serve in the church. I do it in the name of God, but I've let it take the place of God. I've let it become an idol in my life, something that I put in front of my relationship with the Lord. Another one that I struggle with in my own life is my family, that I put my family oftentimes first in my life. That they've gone before God in my relationship. Now, it is good that I love my wife and I love all of my kids. That is what I am called to do. But too often, we allow that to take the place of God in our lives. And to us, it becomes a false idol. Becomes something that we put in the place of God. Another one that I have in my own life is what I would call the promise of future security. 
The promise, this idea that if I could just, if I could just make the right decisions, if I could invest the correct way, if I could just make that amount of money and I could just make the wise decisions about finances, that somewhere down the road there would be this future, this, this independence, this way that I wouldn't need anything else, that I would be secure. It's this false God of future security that we struggle with. I encourage you, be honest this morning. What have you placed in front of God in your life? What has become an idol to you? And I promise it's not the same for everyone. Each one of us struggles in a different way, but I promise each one of us struggles with it. And so if we begin to be honest with ourselves, if we can't be honest with anybody else, we can at least be honest before ourselves and before God. What if you allowed to take that place? What's worked its way into God's position? The sin of idolatry. See, we're monotheistic in our beliefs, but our practices are polytheistic. Our practices bring in every false God. And so Elijah the prophet, he steps into this polytheistic culture. And he confronts the king. And he makes this very prophetic and this very profound statement. He stands before the people. He stands before the king. And he begins to basically to preach this one message. Now I can boil it all down to he looks at them as they're going back and forth. He looks at the king who's brought these false idols. He looks at them and he comes out with this one prophetic statement. And he basically says, it's time. He says, people, it's time to quit wavering. And he looks at the children of Israel and he looks at the king and he says, it's time to quit wavering. It's time to stop your wavering. It's time to quit flip-flopping between all these gods that you think have these promises for you. It's time to quit wavering between them. And we'll see this in the life of Elijah. This is his message. And watch this in verse 19 as we go a little bit further. He says, it's time to quit wavering. And so what he says to kind of hammer this home, he said, we're going to have a good old-fashioned showdown. We talked a little bit about this last week. That we're going to have a showdown now. We're going to kind of see what time it is. What time it is for you. What time it is for your beliefs. And watch, he says this to the king in verse 19. Now summon the people. So bring everybody from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal. And the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now let's just pause for a moment. And say that is one big stinking table. All right. That's just what we have to. (laughs) Somebody had to say it. All right. Watch in verse 20 now. So Ahab sends word throughout all Israel. He assembles the prophets on Mount Carmel. And all Israel comes. And Elijah went before the people. And watch what he says. He says, how long will you waver? And Elijah goes before me. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver between two opinions? And he asks this piercing question. And he says, if the Lord is God, help me out here. What does he say? Follow him. But if Baal is God, what does he say? Follow him. But the people said nothing. And he steps in. He says, how long, children of Israel? How long, King Ahab? How long, false prophets? How long will you waver? How long are you going to waver in your belief in God? How long are you going to waver in how you live your life? How long are you going to waver in what you set up as an idol in your life? How long are you going to waver in who takes first place? And he's saying to them, quit quit wavering. And I believe if Elijah was here today, he'd have the same message. Quit wavering. Quit wavering between two. Quit saying, well, God, I want all the blessings and I want everything you have for me, but I don't want to obey the things that you tell me to do. And God, I want, I want you to take me to heaven and save me from hell, but I don't want to sacrifice and I don't want to you know, follow you truly in my life. And God, I want all of your good things, but I don't want to give up my bad things. Quit wavering. We have to quit wavering in our lives. Quit being a Christian on Sunday and a heathen on Monday. I feel Elijah's just speaking directly to me. I don't know if he's speaking to you. I'm just preaching to myself this morning. All right, everybody. But I feel it speaking directly. Quit your wavering. 
Quit wavering. Quit putting things ahead of God. Quit wanting the benefits of being unwilling to sacrifice. Quit wavering. Pick a side. If you've ever had the immense pleasure of being in my vehicle during a time of intense traffic here in Baton Rouge, which I just have as one of my top ten sins of all time. I just hate, hate traffic, and I hope none of you ever ride with me in traffic, because then you, I won't be your pastor anymore, all right, everybody? But one of the things I hate the most in the middle of it is when somebody decides that our lane on this side is looking pretty good, and so they pull over in front, right? And that's all well and good. They made their decision. But then they see the lane they got out of also starts to look a little bit good, right? You see this at the grocery store, too. You see these people. They're like, well, that one's starting to move. And so then they pull their car back into that lane. Okay, that's fine and good. That's just fine. But then our lane finally starts to move. Come on, somebody. 18-wheeler pulled off, and we got about 10 feet to move up. And they see that, and they cause about three accidents on their way back to our lane. They try to put it. But then they say, pick a lane, jerk face, right? That is our... (laughs) Which is what I usually shout until my children started to shout it, too. And then (laughs) my wife doesn't let me shout that anymore. All right, everybody? (laughs) Come on, pick a lane. And I can hear Elijah saying that directly to us this morning. You quit your wavering. Pick. Choose. And watch, I love how he says this to me. He says, quit, quit trying, to, trying to choose between. He said, just pick. If, if God is God, then pick him. But if Baal, and I wanted to conceptualize this into our modern day lives. Because I think that this is something that we may have lost, this idea And we kind of read it in Elijah's story. And so we're able to block it out because we don't really understand what he's talking about. And because if Elijah were here today, he would say, quit wavering. Quit trying to just kind of pick in both. He says, pick pick a lane. Don't ride on the fence. Don't do that. Come on, pick a lane. Quit wavering between them. But I believe what he was saying. Because if he said to us, if Baal is God, you would be like, well, Baal who? But what Elijah is saying to us in our day and age, that if your little G God is really God, then serve him. If your little G God is really the real God of your life, if that's really who the true God is, then go for it. In other words, in other words, if, if material possessions, if, if accumulating material possessions really is the God of your life, if that's really God, go for it. Go into massive debt, like buy everything you can possibly buy. Like, like do it all. Don't just buy some things, right? Buy everything. Go in, steal if you have to. I'm not making this up, right? If, if everything is justified, because that is the God of this age, if that, everything is justified, then stealing is justified. Go into that, buy everything you have, if that's what it, and don't ever give again, don't ever be generous to any person in your life, because that would diminish the ultimate goal of material accumulation. You follow with me? So that is, if that's the ultimate God, go for it. If your image, if, if that's your God, go for it. Be in the gym eight hours a day. Some of you are like, oh, baby, I'm there. Like, that's just preach, brother. If if that's your thing, go for it. If if that's your God, if your image, then buy all the clothes you can. Tat it, color it, puff it, tuck it. Do whatever you have to do. (laughs) Whatever you need to do. And don't even think about that you might die one day because that completely negates your image as your God, right? That just completely throws that out the window. But if if that is your God, go for it. Oh, if sexual pleasure is your God, go for it. If if that's the old God, if that's the God of your life, go for it. And don't let something like marriage hold you back, right? If you're not married, more power to you. If you are married, just step outside the bounds of marriage. Just go for it. Who are we to judge? If that's your God, go for it. If your house, if that's your God, don't just do one little room at a time. Don't just, just go for it. Run up the debt. Do the whole thing. If that is your God, go for it. But... If Christ, the Son of God, 
If Christ, the Son of God, who died for you, who rescued us from our sins, who rose again, who is the God of this, who says, if God is God, then quit your wavering. If your little G, God is God, go for it. But if God, the one true God, if Jesus is God, then quit your wavering. Follow him. Follow him with all of your life. If Elijah, I can feel him speaking right to me saying, Ben, quit your wavering. If God is the one true God, serve him. If Baal is God, follow him. If that little G, God is God, then follow it. Do it with all of your heart. Go after it with everything you've got. But if the one true God really is God, then quit your wavering. You can just feel it. So what does Elijah do? He asks the people, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? How long are you going to keep flip-flopping between these two things? He says, make a choice. Pick a lane. And so he says, come on, bring me two bulls. One for you guys, one for me, one for the 850 false prophets and one for me. And we're going to build two altars and we're going to sacrifice. You're going to sacrifice to your God and I'm going to sacrifice to mine. And watch what he says. Then we pick up the story in verse 24. He says, we're going to find out who the real God is. You call on the name of your God, Baal, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God, watch this, who answers by fire. He is God. Come on, this is Pentecost Sunday. I can't think of a better time to talk about the God who answers by fire. And he says, the God who answers by fire. I love this challenge of Elijah because the people said, watch, the people say what you say is good. And the 850 prophets, they say what you say is good. What, listen what's happening here. They're thinking, you stupid prophet. Like, you don't know. Do you know who Baal is? He's the sun god. Like sun, fire, hot. Like you're about to get smoked, little prophet. Because Baal's about to, you want to do fire. You could have picked anything else, but fire, fire we can do, all right? So they say what you say is good. Would you say it's good? And so Elijah brings them and he goes on this deal, verse 26. And he says, so they took the bull, given them the prophets and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. And watch what they begin to do now. So there's no response. No one answered. I love the Bible just includes these responses. We know there was no response, but I like that it writes it out. Nobody answered and they danced around the altar they had made. Now, I did a little research on this dance, all right, everybody? And I would do it for you, but you wouldn't come back next Sunday, all right? And so they begin to dance around this altar that they have made. And now, this was just a worship dance. It's this full body just throwing themselves around, shrieking before their God. And nobody does that today, right? Nobody, nobody dances like that unless you're at a concert or a game or something, right? Like, nobody, nobody dances like this way. But he begins, they begin to dance around. They begin to cut themselves because that's what they do. And they begin to cry out, Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. And nobody pays attention. They begin to say, Baal, send fire. And nothing happens. And so Elijah does what any good man or woman of God would do. And he starts talking trash to the prophets of Baal. <laughs> And so I just want to remind you, the next time you hear me talking trash at a sports game or doing anything of that sort, it is the man of God that I am following after. All right, everybody? Now, this is what I am called to do. to Some people try to spiritualize this verse. It's not spiritual about it. Elijah's messing with them, all right? He's trying to egg them on. Elijah begins to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought. Perhaps he's just thinking about something. Perhaps he is busy. We'll come back to that word in a second. Or maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's just, maybe he's like had his milk and cookies and he's having a siesta. Like, I don't know. where. It's Sunday afternoon. He's watching the PGA tour. He just, maybe he's asleep on his chair. Come on, somebody. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awake and shout louder. 
Maybe he was there. Now, I want to show you what's funnier than fire and taunting is this word right here, busy. Because you can go back, you Hebrew scholars, you can study this word. What Elijah is telling them is maybe he's in the bathroom. That's the word that he uses here. He's like, maybe, maybe bails on the John and he needs to come. Like, maybe he needs to put down the newspaper and come on out. Like, that's just shout louder, you prophets, because that I think surely he's a God. And so surely he's just can't hear you in the bathroom. He begins to taunt them from that. That's funny. I don't care what you say. All right, everybody. <laughs> just shouting, where is your God? And so verse 28 through 35, what do they do? They shout louder. They take the taunts of a lie. They get even more angry. They shout louder. They cut themselves. They shriek and nothing happens. Nobody responds. They're being shown up out here in front of all the children of Israel that their God is not real. And they're trying to shriek and cry. And scripture says they shouted all day long. Now, the tragedy is a whole lot of us. We don't dance and shout all day long for false gods. We do it all lifetime long. So many of us, we have these false gods that we put in our lives. And oftentimes it's just that sin of momentum where they just keep staying in that place. And all lifetime long, we dance for them. We serve them. We worship them. We give all of our strength and all of our, our minds and we give all of our time to false gods. All lifetime long. But finally, at the end of the day, they dance. They cut themselves. Nothing happens. Elijah does this. 1836. Is what Elijah's response is. Watch what the man of God does. He says, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and helped me out here. And he prayed. So he didn't dance around. He didn't shout. He didn't try to wave his hands, get God's attention like he's the traffic controller of a 747. He just, he just prays. And in part three, we're going to look at the powerful prayers of the prophet in more detail. But Elijah just steps forward and he prays. Begins to lift his voice up to God and he prays this prayer and he begins to cry, Oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, the one true God, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. And watch this, what he says, answer me, oh Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God, that they'll know that you are God and that you are what? Turning their hearts back again. He begins to pray this prayer, this impassioned prayer. He begins to cry out, why, why, Lord, why, why would you show yourself as God? Why do we need you in this moment that they would know you are the one true God? Because you are turning the hearts of the people back. That you're turning the hearts of the people because they used to know you. You can see the power of this statement that he cries out because they used to know you. They used to walk with you, but they put a false God now in your place. They, they used to follow you as the people of God, but now they put these other things in your place. They've gone after the Baals and the Asherah. They've had the false gods that promise what only you can give God. And so show yourself as the one true God. And show that you are turning the hearts of the people back. And as I read that, I felt just passion for some people today. Because you knew God. You've walked with Him. You've known Him. You've followed Him. But somewhere along the way, you've let something take His place in your life. And I just feel a passion in my life that some combination of false God or some, some thing that you didn't maybe even mean to, but you've let it take the throne of your life. I can feel Elijah saying, choose a side, but also saying, if the Lord is God, let him show himself. Show himself strong because he's drawing the hearts back. And I'll just tell you today, if you begin to feel that, that's God drawing you. You begin to feel a conviction in your heart, that's God drawing you back. That he is turning the hearts of the people back to him. And he says we turn them back, turn them back. And whoever is God will reveal himself by what? By fire. 
Whoever's God's going to reveal himself by fire. This is the showdown for Elijah. We've come to this place in chapter 18 now, right? We've, we've seen chapter 17. Now we're in 18, the showdown with the prophets. And he's crying out to God. Elijah prays. And he cries out, God, answer by fire. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I loved to play with fire. I still do, but I used to love to play with fire all the time, everybody. I don't know if anybody else enjoys, like, like one of the joys of my life is finding something that's mysteriously flammable, like hairspray or those little things, right? Kids don't play with fire, all right, everybody? I'm just going to, all of us did, but you don't play with fire, all right? All of us when we were younger. Or guys, right, if you go to a restaurant, my wife, when we were dating, we would go to fancy restaurants. I don't remember what it was like, but when we were dating, we would go to fancy restaurants. And what's the first thing you do when they put that candle in the middle of the table, right? You try to pass your hand through it, all the guys, right? You're trying to show off. Nobody, my wife didn't think it was funny either. None of you people. You try to burn things on the table, see what you can burn before the waiter catches you. Nobody at all. Well, I'm glad I told you that this morning, all right? I'm just glad. I'm glad we had that. I feel better now. So whoever is God, he says, reveal yourself by fire. Reveal yourself by fire. If you're the one true God, he's, he's laid down this gauntlet and now Elijah has prayed. In verse 38, watch what happens. Then the fire of the Lord, watch this. The fire of the Lord fell and it burned up the sacrifice. Not just the sacrifice, the wood, not just the wood, the stones and the soil. And licked up the water in the trench that the false prophets had poured. The fire of God falls down and watch this. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Can you imagine this? Like, they're all praying. The prophets have danced and shrieked. All this. It's been all day long. Elijah steps forward, prays one prayer, and fire falls. <laughs> Burns up the whole altar. Begins this, this pillar of fire. Suddenly, this, this lightning bolt that hits. Can you imagine if you were one of these? I'd be screaming and running for the hills. This incredible display of the power of God. And he just burns up the altar. Burns up, and they begin to cry out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And that would be my prayer for the church, that we would see God in the power that he has. That we would see God in the way that he truly is. That we would see the power of God demonstrated. That we would turn the hearts of the people back to him. And I'll be honest with you, the first time I read this story, I thought to myself, well, duh, if you send a fireball, like, of course, the Lord, he is God, right? I'm just, I put that thing forward, my Lord, just burn it up. And a fireball hits, I am like, I can't do that. Lord, you are, you are God. Like, that's what it's doing. And so I begin to think, why doesn't God just do that today? Now, those of you closer, you don't have to back up, all right? We're not going to have some demonstration. But I begin to think, why doesn't God do that? Why not send a fireball? Why not have this, this demonstration of who he really is to turn the hearts of the people back? And at the same time, I was kind of asking that question. I came to the realization that this is great what he's done through Elijah. This is great that he's shown the fireball and the people cry out, the Lord, he is God. But you watch, the people turn again. These are fickle people we're talking about. But that God, 2,000 years ago, demonstrated his love, didn't send a fireball, didn't send a lightning bolt, didn't do it. God himself stepped down. God himself stepped down in the person of Jesus Christ. Lived a sinless life, died on a cross for our sins, and then rose again that anyone could be saved. You want to see, you want to demonstrate the power of God. It's not in a fireball. You want to demonstrate. In fact, Elijah even learned later on in his story that God wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the fire. He wasn't in all these different things. That God was in the still, small voice. You want to know the power of God. He was the only one that could step down and rescue us. That he gave his life to set us free. And so I can hear Elijah saying, "No, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? If God really is God, follow him. 
You want to see a demonstration of who God really is? No other God, no other false God can make that promise to you. That it can rescue you from your sin, from your addiction, from what you're caught in. No other false God can make that promise to you that they can rescue not only in this life, but in the life to come. That God himself stepped down, that God himself sacrificed his life. That he was raised again so we could know him. And when you do know him through Christ, I promise you all these other false gods, they fall away in comparison because of who he is. They fall away when you see God, when you see him for who he really is. Everything else pales in comparison. You won't even be tempted by all the other false gods because of how great and incredible and mighty our God truly is. Every head bowed, every eye closed today as we pray. I just want to begin to pray a prayer of forgiveness, a prayer of repentance from our heart. And there are some of you today, you would agree with me and say, I have placed something in my life ahead of God. There's something in my life that I put in God's place in my life and I just repent for it. Father, I ask you, give us the strength to recognize, Lord, when we're wrong. We need to repent. Give us that strength, Lord. And then give us, Father, the encouragement and the will to begin to love you with all of our hearts, our soul, our mind, our strength. And so if that's you, if there is something right now with no one else looking around, but right now I want you to give that something a name. Just give it a name right now and begin to pray, Lord, I repent of this. Forgive me. Just be humble before him. Forgive me, God. I I repent. I put this in your place. And I repent of it, God. I begin to serve you again. God, we just humbly pray. Lord, let us be broken of the spirit and the sin of idolatry. As you continue praying today, I just want to pray for a group that I would call nominal Christians. There's those of you who are like, hey, I don't understand anything about this church stuff. I'm just, I'm so far away from all of that. That's not me. I want to pray for you. But right now, I just want to pray for those who are nominal Christians. You say, well, what is nominal? It means Christian in name only. It means you, you contribute to society. You're a good person. You go to church occasionally. You believe some things about Jesus, but it hasn't changed your life. In other words, you're not, you're not searching the Bible looking for God's direction in your life. Christianity hasn't changed the way that you treat people or how you treat material possessions or how you treat the world or where your eyes are focused on eternity. It hasn't changed anything about your life. It's just Christian in name only. Quit wavering. I can tell you one thing today. Quit wavering. Go all in for Christ. Don't just sit on the fence thinking that you can please both masters. The Bible says it's impossible. The Bible says God is not mocked. Don't think that you can serve false gods and the one true God at the same time. You can't quit wavering. Choose. Choose. I promise you the best decision you can make in your life is go all out for Christ. Go all out for him. Make him the Lord of your life. Make him the savior that you served. We're going to follow him. Then there are some of you who are here today. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. But you would say, I don't really, dude, I don't understand the church thing. I don't really, I'm so far from all of that. I just don't think I could do, but, but I do want to be saved. I do want God to rescue me, but I'm just unworthy. I know I could come close to God. I do feel something happen. I don't know what it is, but I do feel something inside of me, something spiritual that's happening. Let me know, let me let you know what that is. And that is God drawing you. 
That is God letting you know that he still wants you. And that feeling of unworthiness that you have, that's a very biblical feeling. Oh, none of us are worthy. Not you, not me. All of us have sinned. All of us. But I promise you, the one true God can wipe clean the slate of your sin, can rescue you. That's why God sent Jesus. That's why Jesus walked on this earth. That's why he lived a sinless life. That's why Jesus came, so that he could rescue us. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he was raised again three days later. The Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. So that's you today. You say, I want that. You walked with God at one point, but now you've walked away from him and you want to recommit. Or maybe you've never made the decision. You say, I want to make that decision today. I would be my honor to help you pray. I'm not looking to embarrass you. I'm not looking to, to call you to the front. This is between you and Jesus. Next week, we'll have baptisms. It's an awesome chance to go public with your faith. But right now, you need to make that decision before your maker. And I can give you the words to the prayer. We can pray it along with you as a church. But you need to say and you need to mean this prayer of surrender. It's you who needs to surrender your life to Jesus. I'm not talking about joining a religion. I'm not talking about joining a church. I'm talking about surrendering your life to the one true God. So that's you today. We're just going to pray together. And church, let's help them. Nobody prays alone. Whether you're in the room or watching online, just say this prayer right now and mean it in your heart. Say, Jesus, save me. I repent. Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my mistakes. I believe you died on the cross. And I believe you rose again. Say these words. I make you the Lord of my life. And all God's church said, amen and amen. Come on, church, can we celebrate for what God has done today? If you prayed that prayer, I promise you, best decision you'll ever make in your life. Before you leave today, we want to talk with you about what your next steps are in the faith. We'll be at our next steps corner. One of our pastoral teams would love to meet with you, or I'll be at the front of the stage. We'd love to talk over that decision that you made. If you're watching online and you feel more comfortable, you can text the word SAVE to the number on the screen. And we would love just to walk you through these next steps to baptize you, to show you the life that you now have in Christ. The rest of you guys, you're dismissed. So excited you joined us today. Be blessed as you go. We'll see you Wednesday for prayer or next Sunday morning.